Thanks for listening to the Art Tactic Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Green. There's been a narrative developing in the art world over the last few years that we've seen progress, perhaps substantial progress, from museums and the market, and that they're paying more attention to female artists and artists of color after these groups have historically been marginalized and really not been given equal opportunities in the art world. But are we actually making progress in these areas? How do we track that? Well, we'll find out today, as in this week's episode of the podcast, we're joined by Julia Halperin, outgoing executive editor at Artnet News, and Charlotte Burns, founder of Studio Burns, and they are co-creators of the Burns Halperin Report. They've just released their most recent report, which explores representation in U.S. museums and the international art market. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks so much for listening. Charlotte and Julia, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Well, I think this is a very important topic and one that's been addressed at length, but really hasn't been discussed with data backing it. So I'm excited to have you on and explore some of the findings from your latest report. So you gathered a significant amount of data on both museum acquisitions over the last several years, as well as the art market. If we start things off with museum acquisitions, Tell us, what are some of the major headlines we can take away from your research? We found generally that our perception of progress and how quickly the art world is coming to reflect the world we live in uh, has been overstated. Uh, and we're not progressing as as much or as quickly as we think. And so we found that in we looked at 31 U.S. museums and objects they collected between 2008 and 2020 and found that only 11% were of work by female identifying artists, 2.2% were by Black American artists, and just uh, 0.5% were of work by Black American women. And that was, I think, you know, pretty bracing and also that the we're not making as much progress as quickly as we think. So in 2009, that's the year that acquisitions of work by women peaked. And 2015 is the year that uh, acquisitions of work by Black American artists peaked. So I have to be honest, to me at least, your results are very surprising, just because from my own personal experiences and just anecdotally what I'm hearing and reading, it seemed like we were making progress on this front. I imagine most of our listeners feel the same way too. Were your results surprising to you though? Or did you have a hunch that perhaps we really weren't making the kind of progress that most suspected? I think that the project started with a hunch that the figures weren't totally aligned with reality back in 2018 when we began looking at this data. But what I would say is that we are constantly surprised. As bad as we expect things to be, we are always surprised to find that there are new ways that this data shows um, that there are new ways in which this data horrifies us. So uh, even though we know this, we've been doing this since 2018, we've been tracking these numbers for years, you do find that you become susceptible to believing that a greater change is underway than is the reality. And one thing I think is different now than when we began working on these 
reports is that the conversation is actually shifted in in some retrograde ways as well. So there has been a lot of talk about progress. There has been this push for progress from some quarters, but equally there's a backlash against that progress in other quarters. We are just as likely to have people say to us now, but don't you think things have gone too far than we are to have people who actually grapple with the reality of the data? So that's a change and that's not a good change. One interesting element of the research is that you actually categorize each museum. Some are contemporary focused, some are encyclopedic, there are a few others. Did you see any kind of discrepancy between these types of museums when it comes to progress on this issue? And I ask because I would think if this issue is perhaps moving in the right direction in some area, it would be with the youngest, most recent generation of artists, and perhaps that may be reflected in these contemporary focused institutions. So we definitely see that contemporary museums are making more progress than encyclopedic museums or university museums or American art museums. So yeah, so you see, I mean, contemporary museums have collected, um, you know, around 9% work by Black American artists over that period of time that we examined. That's still less than the population of Black American people in the United States, which is around 13%. It is more in line with the very limited data we have on the population of Black American artists in the United States, which is closer to 8%. Um, And certainly in collecting the work of female artists, you see contemporary museums, they averaged, you know, under 50%, but pretty close. Um, So that's, you know, pretty encouraging figure. And you see uh, contemporary museums have collected around 3% work by Black American women. You can see that we're we're approaching a volume of collecting that reflects the the world we live in, but at the same time, you know, this is what it, what institutions have collected over the past twelve years, uh, and there's a lot more baggage uh, projecting back into history. That means that their collections are still pretty disproportionate. I mean, we've spoken to people who say, you know, you'd have to stop collecting the work of white men in order to reach, you know, sort of full collection wide parity in in these areas. So I think it is encouraging to see that contemporary institutions are making more of a commitment. And it it does make sense that it's easier for them in some ways. Um, You know, they are collecting work by artists who by and large, have had more access than their ancestors and those that came before to art schools, to the gallery system, to, you know, the the sort of art world apparatus. And you see the lack of that, certainly, in, in encyclopedic collections. But I also think it's important to be realistic about just how deep these dynamics are. Um, So just getting to parity for a certain period of time isn't going to do the trick if what you want is a full collection that reflects the world you live in. Another fascinating aspect of your report was the mention of social movements and their potential impact on the art world. Again, an area I really haven't seen explored, uh, in particular with data. When these social movements are occurring, I think we generally think about the broader society but it's very encouraging to see that they may positively touch the art world and specifically the way in which museums collect art. So how did these movements actually impact museum acquisitions? And 
were they lasting impacts or were they short-lived? Yeah, we, we do see that there is an impact from broader social movements. So even though acquisitions of work by female-identifying artists peaked in 2009, the next two most consequential years came after the Me Too movement in 2016 and 2017. So you see this immediate impact, but you see that it's not necessarily sustained. You see the same thing for acquisitions of work by Black American artists. It peaked two years after the 2013 founding of the Black Lives Matter movement. So there is an impact. These things do make it from the social sphere, from broader politics into our museums, and they do so relatively quickly. But it's not necessarily deep or profound or sustained. So if we take a look at the findings in your report as a whole, I don't want to be so pessimistic, but are there positives that you discovered in your research? Because it feels like the message that comes across is really about the harsh reality that still exists and we have a long way to go. I think that's such a great question because we really grapple with this. I mean, the reality is that it's depressing. The reality yeah. is that the numbers are bad and we don't want to sugarcoat it. And, we, and we're also mindful and maybe sensitive to the fact that as journalists, we've probably contributed to this problem in the past. Or I could say definitely. I, I mean, I definitely have contributed to this myth building in the past inadvertently and, you know, I just don't think I totally understood the the way in which perception and myth is built through media, by which I mean so much reporting became market-driven through art fairs. And when you're at an art fair, it's a trade show and you're running around and you're trying to find an angle on a random assortment of objects gathered for a trade selling event. So you run around and you're like, oh, look, there's loads of work by women. It's a great year for women. And you run around and you find quotes from people and you can point to a major museum exhibition and you can point to some big ticket items that sold at auction recently. And then you can say, look, all these dealers here in Art Basel are selling X, Y, and Z. And then you get quotes from someone else and you might reach out to an academic. And I think that I've done that reporting so many times in my life. And I've commissioned it and I've edited it and I've reported on things in that way. And I think it is a market-led phenomenon, but I think it's broader and deeper than that. I think there is a complacency in the way that we talk about reality in the art world, mostly because it's an imaginative realm or meant to be, and it's meant to support creativity. And basically, there aren't that many facts. So if we believe that the art world is a progressive place, which most people in the art world do, then it's something that we're all, we all have a stake in maintaining that fiction, whether we understand the roles we play in that or not. And I certainly didn't understand that role. Now we're doing these data studies. We find the reality to be so different than the realities we probably previously wrote about. And that's on us. And other people would have different understandings of those realities and more in depth and more profound than me, for instance. But Having said that, if you just hammer people over the head with how bad things are, it's not very motivating. It can be very paralyzing and people don't really want to hear it. So we've had this conversation in, in detail when we talk to each other about why are we doing this and what do we want to achieve? Because it started as a journalistic inquiry. You know, is this a great moment to be a black American artist like is being reported? And if not, let's stop saying it. 
it's progressed since then into this kind of double-headed thing where there's a database and there's a journalistic inquiry. And and we've realized that we wouldn't spend this much time doing something that literally nobody asked for if we didn't want it to have an impact. So I think even the way that we think about our role as journalists has shifted. We understand that this is a form of advocacy. We realize that we have, this is a project about bias and we have so many biases, a lot of them very ugly. But another bias that we have is that we're doing this because we want it to create a change. You know, we understand it's not perfect. We understand there are things we get wrong about it. And we understand we're not the spokespeople for change. But we do want to try and capture a moment in time, not just to say, isn't this terrible, but ideally to foster a different kind of conversation. So we also don't want things to just be so damning that there's nowhere to go other than just to keep your head ducked under that pillow, which is why this year we're really focusing on commissioning other voices. It's less about trying to convince people that the change is or isn't happening because the people in it are aware of it. So this is more about saying, if you're interested in what's working and what people are doing in the different conversations people are having that are grappling with these really difficult issues, then head over to the websites and read the things that other people are saying. We can give you the numbers and they're depressing. But if you want to read about change and how to make it, then you know, read an article by Naomi Beckworth, the deputy director of the Guggenheim, that's talking about the longer term mechanisms for building change into our institutions. Or read Jessica Morgan, the director of the DIA Art Foundation, on how she's created change since she arrived by transforming the board and the collection and where they still have to go. So we've kind of handed the mic over to other people who are doing this work. We're not doing it. We're cataloging data. It's a different thing. We can tell you the data's bad. But then we can point you to people who are committed to creating change and are doing so. Wow, I think that was incredibly insightful and very self-reflective. Julia, did you want to add anything to that? I think our bias as journalists before starting this project, as Charlotte said, was sort of a bias toward the new and different. And I think when you see something that is an exception, your impulse as a journalist is to say, this is a trend, this is a thing that's changing. Uh, and not necessarily recognizing that the systems that underpin it are not changing. Uh, and so it can give you a really flawed sense of what's happening. And so this has really been an exercise for me personally in sort of not trusting my gut in a way, not trusting my first impulse. And I think it makes us better journalists and better storytellers. And I think it also, what we found is that the question of hope, there is plenty in terms of the people who are making change and, and how they're thinking about it. And there is some in the data too, but it's not the sort of easy headline figures that I think would have been our impulse to to write before we started this project. You know, the the hopeful things are are things like 2015 was the peak year for collecting of work by Black American artists. That was largely driven by, you know, a single institution, the National Gallery of Art, which acquired the Corcoran collection. So it's kind of a fluky thing. Whereas, mm -hmm. you know, in 2018 and 2017, you see uh, collecting kind of approaching that level, not not surpassing it, but approaching it. And 
and it's much more evenly distributed or widely distributed among different institutions. So that's not like a sexy thing. <laughs> it's not, um, it's a sort of subtle point about change and progress. Or for example, the, the work of Black American women entering museums, it's the only category that we looked at where it's majority gifts and minority purchases. So more gifts, sorry, the opposite. Um, it's the only category that we looked at where there are more purchases entering the collection than gifts. So that shows us that institutions are identifying this area as valuable and putting their own money behind it. And so the broader system that may not have been set up to bring their work into an institution, there is a bit of a counter current that is showing that it, the people who work inside these institutions do have some commitment to it. So I think it's for us just a realization that the easy narrative is often not the right one. And so if we take a look at some of these museums that you gather data from, who would you say are some that are really leading the charge, relatively speaking, and which museums are maybe still far behind when it comes to progress on this issue? Um, <laughs> the diplomatic answers to that, and and then and less so. Um, I think that a really positive thing is when you look at um, scale. So it's really easy in the art world because we're so money driven to think that nothing is possible without the budget to do so. And of course, that's true in some practical reality. However, when we look at the data, it is the case that the institutions making the most change are museums with a smaller budget. Um, so mid-sized institutions with annual budgets of between 15 and $20 million outperform their peers in collecting work by Black American artists um, broadly and by Black American female identifying artists specifically. And we looked at museums with a range of budgets from you know $10 million to above $100 million annually. And so these, these are institutions that are not at the top of the collecting sphere. They're not the institutions with lots and lots of cash to throw around. And they are the institutions that are often making change. And we see this year on year that often it's the smaller institutions that are finding their own paths and committing to them way before things are discussed in terms of trend or the right thing to do or the business case for X. These are institutions that just have been doing this and continue to do this and have kind of aligned their staff, their directors, their boards, and they're all kind of behind this. The other thing is that if you have the money, of course, you can create change quicker. So we can see, if we look at the most recent year's data, that two big, you know, massive container ships of art, the National Gallery and MoMA, they've both been making real change over the past several years. And it's they're collecting at a scale that impacts the overall national statistics. And I would say, I mean, in terms of institutions that are not doing so well, I think, you know, you can see a sense of how collecting dynamics can really hamstring a museum if they're not being really conscious about changing them. So one example of that is the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, which by number value, like by number of objects, collected more work by women than any other institution but they collect so much work. They've brought in so many objects into their collection during that period of time that percentage wise, proportionally, they're one of the lowest. 
And so, you know, it's, it invites questions also about not just what work by underrepresented artists are you bringing into the museum, but what are you bringing into the museum in total? Do you need to rethink your acquisitions policies in order to create a store of objects that you can sustain and show? So that was a real sort of surprising find for us. So tell us a little bit about the op-eds that you have coming. I think it's really innovative to have not just your report that's data-driven and you also have an analysis of that data in your report, but you also have these op-eds that are by third-party individuals who are play different roles within the art world but are invested in one way or another in this space. Uh, so tell us the op-ed schedule and share some of the individuals you have who are participating in that. You know, the idea this time was really for us to do the grunt work of the spreadsheets and the data, and then to turn it over to people who understood these dynamics better than we did and can speak more directly to how they're working to change them, how we can think about them differently, and what's sort of happening underneath the surface. And so that is a mix of commissioned journalism. So for example, Melissa Smith is doing a case study on the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago, which is one of the institutions that has shown the most progress in all three data sets that we examined. Um, Zachary Small is looking at how two different museums, the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts and the Baltimore Museum of Art, both deaccessioned work by white male artists to buy work by women and artists of color and look at, you know, what kind of impact did that actually have? And then we have a wide variety of op-eds ranging from Naomi Beckwith, who is looking at how we should be thinking about collection transformation and the fact that it's sort of a, a problem like climate change. It's going to take generations, but also require immediate attention. We have uh, an op-ed from Jessica Morgan, the director of the Dia Art Foundation, who really walks us through how she changed the makeup of her collection and of her board and of her program. And we have some other sort of news you can use style op-eds, one from Mia Locks, the co-founder of Museums Moving Forward, that looks at eight practical things that people working in museums can do to build a more equitable environment. We have a contribution from Adrian Piper, who sort of questions the entire basis of what we're doing, uh, as she does best. <laughs> So it's a real range of people kind of engaging with this subject on a variety of levels. You know, how do we how do we fix it? Are we even looking in the right place? Um, we we're sort of trying to cover it from from all different angles with people who understand the situation on the ground better than we do. Julian, Charlotte, thanks so much again for coming on the podcast and helping us break down your latest version of the Burns Helper Report. If our listeners haven't checked it out already, they definitely should. Where's the best place to find it? You can find everything at artnetnews.com. Uh, just look at Burns Halperin Report and you can find it at studioburns.media. And we're going to be running the op-eds through the rest of the month. So um, there's going to be plenty to read. I think we've already got about eight or, eight or nine articles online. We'd love to hear what people think. It is very much a collaboration. We've worked with a series of partners this year, Museum Moving Forward, Black Trustee Alliance, SMU, 
low bus we're sponsored by ubs like we're we're really working in concert with a lot of people which is another big difference this year it's made a project a lot better a lot richer which is a very long-winded way of saying we really welcome people's feedback on um on what we're getting right and what we're getting wrong and yeah there's definitely enough to keep people reading well into the holidays i joke that anytime charlotte leaves the house she returns with another commissioned op-ed. <laughs> so uh, there is plenty to dig into. Thanks so much again for joining us. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having us.